may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, Gospel of John chapter 14. If you're uh, visiting with us, um, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are new to Christianity, uh, maybe um, just checking Jesus out in his church, uh, we're so thankful that you're here. And if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those Bibles um, in the pew rack um, in front of you. Mark uh, chapter, or Luke, John chapter 14, we've printed the text starting um, at verse 15. But I'm going to actually back us up in your Bibles to verse 12 and read um, from there all the way through verse 31. This is God's word. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments." And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father Rise, let us go from here. This is God's word. Would you join with me in praying and ask his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, as we come to your word, 
You have promised that it will never return to you void. It will always accomplish that for which you sent it out. It will either harden our hearts to you. Or make them more alive to you and your ways. And so this is, this is what we want. We want in the hands of your spirit, your word to penetrate so deep into us. That we feel as if we are being cut to the core of our being. So that you can remake us into the image of your son. And at the end... We want to love you more, Lord Jesus, and experience more of your peace. And so come to us and preach. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Change is one of the things uh, that we most deeply long for. The old adage that nobody likes change, but the fact of the matter is that all day long, that's what we want the most. We wish we were different. And not a single one of us who doesn't spend a good bit of our day disliking ourselves. Often when I get criticism, and um, it it doesn't come all that often, but when it comes, and sometimes it comes in the form of, you know, I don't like you, I'll be like, I don't like me either. We're actually on the same page on this. We leave a party with our closest friends, our closest friends, and we second-guess conversations. We wish we would have been someone different in that setting. The vast amount of books and podcasts out there with stories that are geared towards making us feel better about ourselves, comfortable in our own skin, just betrays how deeply all of us wish we were different. We want change. Jesus is presenting a pathway here in John chapter 14, a way of life, a way of life that ends with peace. Verse 27, my peace I give to you, I leave it with you, the peace that I've experienced. But peace here is so much richer of a concept than what we normally think about peace. Our our version of peace is usually something without conflict. We just, the best we can imagine is a conflict-free existence that we call peace. But in the biblical narrative, peace, shalom, is so much richer than that. It's, It's more than just the absence of conflict, but the presence of a rightly ordered world. Shalom is is the sense of, the British put it this way, it's a world where things are put to rights, where things are ordered in the way that they're supposed to be, internally, externally, all around us. And it's that kind of peace in relationship to the Father and to others that Jesus had experienced in his life. But for us to get there, that requires change. Because there are no parts of me, in my own heart, in my own thinking, that are put to rights just yet. Here's the context of what's going on here in John chapter 13 through 17. Jesus is the, it's the night before he will be crucified in the morning after this meal that they're having together. In the late wee hours of the morning, Jesus will be betrayed, 
falsely accused, unjustly, unjustly tried, and then hanged on a cross, bearing the weight of God's sin. He's gathered his 12 disciples with him in this room, a small room in the second story of a house. And their world is about to be radically disrupted. This is the man that they had hung all of their hopes and dreams on. They had left their income behind as they changed careers and dedicated the last three years of their lives following Jesus. Many had left homes and families behind. They had put all on the shoulders of Jesus. They were fully in with him. And now he's telling them, I'm leaving you. You imagine if the emotions that are going through the room as they're looking at this event. Some of you have been in careers where you left a career behind to join a startup. And the startup seems like it's going great until one day out of the blue you get an email from the CEO saying we're shutting down. All that you had left behind and put into that now disrupted. Or imagine a, your spouse coming in one day and just out of the blue saying, I'm done, I'm, I'm leaving. And the emotions that would flow up to the surface in terms of fear and dread and abandonment and what's going on and where are these things going next. Waves of overwhelming Despair, And you can get a sense then of the kind of emotions that were ripe in the room that night. And you can understand why in verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. He repeats it again in verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he attends to it with the promise. My peace I'm leaving with you. My peace I'm giving to you. But he is inviting them on a pathway, a particular course of life that leads to shalom. A pathway that requires change. Because it's Jesus' intention in the world To create a holy people. A new people. A people who love what he loves. And has the same resources at our disposal that he did. You should have a view, as I said last week, and I will say again in weeks to come. Whatever view you have of following Jesus, it should scare you a great deal. Because in our union with him, like Jesus is going to call you into a greater and deeper life of obedience than you could possibly fathom. It's a constant testing of allegiance. Will you follow your own desires or my way? Will you follow my kingdom or yours? Will you give up so that you can gain or will you settle for the lesser things? In our union with Jesus... One of the things we saw last week from John chapter 13 is that his life becomes the outline that we trace with our own lives. And children, as you are learning the children's catechism in Sunday school, the question has been put to you, what kind of life did Jesus live? A life of obedient service 
and suffering. Verse 15 again. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John repeats this theme in his letter in 1 John. The same John who was at this table right next to Jesus. So intimate at the dinner that when he looked back at Jesus, he reclined against his breast. That same John writes this in 1 John 5. By this we know that we love the children of God. That we are the children of God. That we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And then he makes this bold declaration. And His commandments are not burdensome. And Jesus is calling his, his people into a life of obedience. He's calling us to follow the ways that he followed. And they are not burdensome ways because his intention is to create a holy people. Because to be one with Jesus means that you love what he loved. And he loved and kept his father's commands in John 4. As he's meeting with the woman at the well, he boldly announces, this is the food that I'm eating. This is the nourishment that nourishes my soul. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. When you think of God's commands as the instruction manual for a well-run human life. Now, most of us don't read the instruction manual. We open up whatever product it is and everything has to be assembled all the time. And we think, especially us men, we're like, we can handle this. And then we get done and like, it looks like it might supposed to look, but there are all these pieces that are missing at the end. And at that moment when things aren't functioning, then we'll go back. Well, I guess we're going to have to read this and figure out how it's supposed to be put together. We'll go back to the manufacturer and have him tell us. How this thing is supposed to function rightly. And you see what Jesus is calling his people into is a holy life. Which is a life of flourishing. Because the law of God is good. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 7. The law of God is holy, righteous and good. And as John reminds us in 1 John 5. And those commandments aren't burdensome. Or consider the love song that David sings in Psalm 19. A love song to the law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are redeemed. Are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's not an unreasonable command. You expect this of your spouse. If you love me, you'll stay faithful to me. If we're one, then you'll... Love the things that I love and you'll hate the things that I hate. And it's part of entering into a relationship with anyone, but especially with those that you love. I will claim as valuable the things that are valuable to you. 
But this isn't a, a relationship of obedience to get into relationship with God. This is an, it, Jesus is inviting us onto his pathway. And it's a relationship of amazing mutuality. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and I'll manifest myself to him. Now, look, Jesus had walked with these men. He had already told Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter and his robusta is like, no, I'll never do that. And Jesus is like, yes, you will. He knows what these men are not capable of and what they will be capable of, as we will see, by the resources that he will deploy. He is not high expectations, but just expectations to continue to move forward. And as a result, I love you. My father will love you. We'll manifest more of ourselves to you as you walk down the pathway of keeping my Commands. And then in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. This, in some ways, my friends, is a litmus test for the genuineness of your faith in Christ. The question you should be asking is, is at least sometimes in your life, is I'm, am I really in Jesus? And if so, then he is really in me. And if I am in Jesus and he is in me, and we are one, verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me should be some sense of change going on in those that belong to Jesus. And that change should manifest in, I'm loving your ways more today than I did two years ago. Don't turn this into a navel-gazing exercise where you're constantly picking lint out of your belly button and wondering, did I get it all? That's the wrong horizon for this activity. This sort of self-assessment, do I love his ways and his word and his commands and am I working to keep them? It has to have a different horizon than navel gazing. It has to look backwards over time and outwards at the world around us. Do I love his commands? Do I love them more than before I became a Christian? I love him more than I did two years ago. I love them more than I did ten years I've seen him change me towards the direction of a greater love for his commands and his ways. And then outward. It's costing me to love the things that Jesus loves. It's costing me in terms of friction and tension with the world around me. I love these things and I feel so different and out of place. Whether it's in terms of sexuality as God has designed it, in the covenant context of a lifelong relationship between a husband and a wife, and that kind of puts us at odds with the world. Or whether it's in the tone of gentleness that the Savior bears himself that puts us at odds with a world that loves outrage. Whatever it is to look outward and then 
at myself and say, I do value things different than I did before and then what I see in the world around me. But notice this. Obedience to God's commands is not a prerequisite for a relationship with Jesus. He's speaking to those that he has already called to himself. He will take you as you are. He will take you however you come. He will wash you with his blood and present you before the Father as holy, blameless, and free from accusation. No accusation can stick against God's people. The judgment of God has fallen on Jesus. And so he can take you as you are because there's nothing else to add to his finished work. It is done. And because he is such a savior, full of love and power, he will not leave any who come to him as we are. He'll change us deeply. The blueprint of that change are his commands. But the resources for that change are in his life as well. Jesus gives his people a helper. Verse 15 again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's going to happen in your life. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you. And will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then again in verse 26. But the helper. The Holy Spirit. Whom the Father sends in my name. He will teach you all the things. And bring to remembrance. All that I said to you. He's another. Helper. Another can mean a couple of things. It can be well. Here's an apple and here's another kind of fruit, a lemon. But another can also mean the same kind. Here's an apple and here's another apple. And in Greek, those are actually two very different words. And when Jesus is promising here that another helper will come, it's that latter one. Here's another one who's just like the first one. And Jesus is promising to give the spirit who has carried out the ministry of Jesus to his people. This is why J.D. Greer, I love the con- He's got a book he calls the Holy Spirit, Jesus Continued. This is the same one who helped Jesus. Verse 17, he will be with you. You've seen him, he's with you now, and he will be in you. In what way was he with them then? He was with them because the Holy Spirit was the one who was empowering Jesus' ministry all along. He was conceived by the Spirit. He saw victory in the desert temptations when Satan unloaded all of his arsenal on Jesus. It was because of the Spirit's power 
and ministry and sustenance of him over those 40 days that he came out victorious. When Jesus healed the sick, it was by the Spirit. When the next morning, this very next morning, when he hangs on the cross, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God for our sins, he does so by the Spirit. When he's raised from the dead, he is raised from the dead to new creation victory by the Spirit. And so his helper, he'll give. And that helper who they saw in Jesus' life, who had been with them in that way, is now going to take up home in the people of God. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is not done. That's enough of a promise, but that's not done. Verse 18. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's going to die, be raised, physically reigning in heaven. Now, where is Jesus? Jesus is bodily present on his throne in heaven, but he's spiritually present by his spirit in his people. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. I'm not going to leave you under-resourced and on your own to figure it out. A life of obedience to my command is not by your resources, but by Jesus' resources who commands it. The Christian is, is overflowing in abundance because we have two helpers. The Spirit who is in us and the Son who's at the Father's right hand. Again, John, 1 John 2, he uses the same word here for Jesus. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have a helper with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the world. Now back up to verse 12 of chapter 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Greater works than Jesus? That's a profound thing to hear. I mean, you can, almost, you can hear them say, uh, Jesus, I saw you raise the dead. But now I'm hearing you say, I'll do greater works than you did. I saw you heal a man born blind. Greater works than you did? There was a woman who had spent all of her resources and was completely without hope. And just by touching, you healed her when she could find no other healing. And like, greater works than these? You fed 5,000 with a little kid's lunchbox. Greater works than these? Now, commentators are all over the place on this. Some think miracles and healings. And certainly the apostles did those, but they were similar to Jesus. Not greater. Some land here and think 
that what we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about is evangelism. Jesus evangelized, brought the gospel to a small portion of creation in ancient Israel, but now it's gone over all the earth. Perhaps that's an option, it is. I just don't think you have to go that far afield from the context. Because immediately he drops down in verse 15. Again, in, as Jesus is saying this, he's not being broken up by paragraph headings and verse numbers. Immediately he drops into this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's the natural progression. So what makes our obedience to the commands of God a greater work? Because the Spirit has to do more in us than he had to do in Jesus. Because Jesus, in his humanity, he had to overcome the temptations of Satan. He had to overcome the lure of the world, both of which are things that we have to fight against to keep God's commands. We have external enemies. But Jesus didn't have to overcome the fiercest of our enemies, our own indwelling sin, our own sinful desires. We're bent inward on ourselves because our hearts are so corrupted by sin. Have you noticed this? This is what Paul says in Romans 5. You notice this. Tell a child not to do something. They immediately want to do it. They don't just do it. They want to do it. The same thing's true for us. The moment that I tell you not to do something, the thing that comes out of our hearts is, now I want it. Paul said, I didn't even, I didn't think I was that big of a coveter. The law came, told me not to covet. That's number 10. Gimme, 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 gimme. The law said, don't covet. Not only did I want, now that I realized I was a coveter, but now the law inflamed my sin. Sin came alive, and I just wanted to covet all the time. And so Jesus, by his helper, has to overcome our flesh to straighten our inwardly bent hearts out so that they bend towards God and others. And the helper helps with particular tools. The word that John uses that we translate as helper, it's also translated counselor, sometimes comforter, sometimes advocate. Sometimes we just take the Greek letters and turn them into an English word and call them the paraclete. It's a compound word. It carries, it's very unusual. Jesus is purposely pulling a word that's very unusual to load it with new concepts. It really carries the sense of someone who shoulders the responsibility of another. In all of those senses, whether it's a counselor, sometimes we translate it comforter, advocate. In all of those senses, someone else is carrying the responsibility for, the, for another's good care. Sometimes it's used in a courtroom for someone who pleads a case against all evidence on behalf of another. Sometimes it's someone who comes alongside of you and encourages you along the way like you've seen people doing at the 20th mile of a marathon, running alongside. You can make it. Don't give up yet. I know you're exhausted and tired. Providing strength alongside when they're weak. You see us in a gymnastics coach who will, when teaching a child to perform a routine, will 
help the child flip and then catch the child if they begin to fail so they're not hurt. Always pushing them along to develop them and training them. And so when the helper comes, he comes as the spirit of truth. Verse 17. And then in verse 26, when he comes, he will let he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. And so as a result of having the external word of God and the internal power of God in the spirit, don't let your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. Because Jesus is here by his word and spirit to do the same thing he's been doing all along. Verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while I'm with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all these things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. This is why the word is so powerful all the time. Whenever it is open, whenever it is preached, whenever it is read. Have you ever thought, you know, if I was face to face with Jesus, things would be different. I'd have more intimacy with him. If I was like the disciples and walked with him, I'd have more intimacy. I'd see his miracles. It'd be easier to believe him. Then my faith would be stronger. You hear what Jesus is saying? You actually have something better today. Than they had then. And Peter picks this up in 1 Peter. In 2 Peter 1. He calls to mind the event when Jesus was transfigured. He's changed into his glory. Peter, James, and John are there on the mountain. Jesus is changed into his glory. They're freaking out. They don't know what to say. Should we build tents? Moses and Elijah are there. This is really weird, but it's amazing. And then Peter calls that to mind. He says this, get this, this is what he says. We ourselves heard that very voice born from heaven that proclaimed, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then today, we have the word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Why is it more confirmed? Because it's tended to by the Spirit who's taken up home in God's people. Tends to his word so that any morning when you open it, every Sunday when you sit here, every time you're in despair and can find no hope and comfort, know that the word of God, by the help of the Spirit, is becoming powerful and cannot be stopped. That's the rhythm of redemption. Now, lastly, I know we're going late, but I have the mic. <clears throat> Verse 31. It's a very strange ending. Let us rise and go from here. Rise. Let us go from here. It's, it's odd. They actually don't leave the room. There's, there's three more chapters of dialogue after this. But the context makes, I think, makes again clearer. I will no longer talk much with you. But you have my helper, 
And his help will lead to my glory on the cross. And at that point, the climax of the conflict between the world, the flesh, and the devil will finally have its final blow. And I'm going to come out victorious. And as I go to the cross, the ruler of this world is coming. He's got no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So let's rise and go from here. Rise and go from here is a military call to action in the ancient Near East. Let's engage, let's go, let's engage in the conflict with the internal enemy of sin, the external enemy of Satan, the pressures of the world that wants us to leave the ways of Jesus behind. You're not a fearful, destitute child. The Father and the Son by the Spirit has taken up His home with you. So let's rise and go into this conflict. During World War II, General Jonathan Wainwright was captured by the Japanese. He was in command of the troops in the Philippines. At the time of his capture, he was the highest ranking prisoner of war in World War II. And because of that, while held in the concentration camp in Japan, he was cruelly treated. He had become, by his own testimony, a broken, crushed, hopeless, and starving man. Finally, when the Japanese surrendered... And the war ended. The United States sent a colonel. The army sent a colonel to the camp to announce personally to General Wainwright two things. The enemy has been defeated. And you are now in command. His counselor had announced to him the good news. Victory and rule. And after Wainwright heard the news, he returned to his quarters and was confronted by some of the guards. Who began to mistreat him just as they had done in the past. Wainwright, however, with the news of victory and rule fresh on his mind, declared to them, No, I'm in command here. These are my orders. And from that moment on, Wainwright was in control, not because of any resources that he had had, but because he had full access to the resources of the victorious army. If you belong to Jesus, you are not an under-resourced orphan, abandoned and without hope. God the Father and God the Son have taken up residence in you by the hope of the Holy Spirit. And they are full of all of the resources to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, we would ask that you would take these ordinary elements and by the helper, bring grace to our lives. We look inward, we have no ability to obey your commands. But when we look to Christ and Him crucified, when we feed on the gospel, the resources at our disposal are overwhelmingly sufficient for the call. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. So we come here hungry, but we trust that you are sufficient to feed us on yourself. 
And so we pray our Savior, tend to us. And we pray it in your name. Amen.